0: Welcome to Reality Check, a weekly podcast about anything and everything having to do with education. I'm Jeannie Allen, founder and CEO of the Center for Education Reform. We chose the name Reality Check because a lot of what you read about education these days is often wrong or misleading. If you wanna know what's really going on in American education, from K through career, you're going to need a Reality Check. My guest today on Reality Check is a great friend and leader in the charter school movement across America. Jim Gunner is the president and CEO of the National Charter Schools Institute, a national organization devoted to helping increase the supply of quality charter schools across the country, and he's based in Michigan, and before being at the National Charter School Institute, Jim was the head of the Central Michigan University Charter School Institute, which does the authorizing for many charter schools throughout that state. Prior to that, he was part of the association that helped develop charter schools. And prior to that, and I'm sure I'm missing parts of it, Jim, he was uh, former Governor John Angler's policy aide. Jim, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you. It's great to be with you.
0: Well, I am so glad we are talking today of all days because, um, once again, charter schools are in the news all across the, all across the country. And um, let's just start, though, by having you share a little bit about what you guys are doing at the National Charter Schools Institute.
1: Sure. The institute is an organization that focuses on helping people implement the charter school idea. We primarily work with authorizers and boards and schools, believing that if the three of those are aligned and focused, that they're going to win more for our kids in our country.
0: Okay, so tell uh, most people out there probably don't know what an authorizer is, I am guilty of using that word out of context. Uh, How does that work, and why is it different than what we see in traditional public education?
1: Great question. Chartering fundamentally is about improving public education for all kids. And one of the ways that it does that is it creates an alternative provider of public education in a community. And so for a new school to be created, it needs to be, quote, authorized, meaning given approval to start up. And there are agencies designated by state legislators to do that work. For example, in my home state of Michigan, that authority was given to state universities, community colleges, and school districts. In other states, like in Nevada, they've created a state charter commission. Um, other states, like Indiana, the mayor's office in Indianapolis can charter schools. Um, in Chicago, Chicago Public Schools can charter them. So they come in different forms and shapes, different capacities. At Central Michigan University, we chartered about 60 schools, serving 30,000 students across the state of Michigan. We were known as a large authorizer. There are authorizers that only charter one or two schools. So. The point is they come in different varieties and forms, but they are the agencies that give authorization or approval for a new school to start. They then have authority to monitor and make sure the schools are performing for the kids and the taxpayers. And then as a charter school, you're performance based. So you have to get renewed. And the authorizers um, are responsible for reissuing a charter contract. Often the contracts are five years. Some states have allowed charter schools to get contracts for 10 or more years. But the whole point is it's really a legal structure to create a new public school to serve kids and do great things.
0: And the charter paradigm uh, doesn't have any kind of school board typically attached to it, right?
1: Well, they actually do in the sense that when a charter contract is issued and authorized, it's actually issued to a board. We call it the Charter School Governing Board. And in my home state, again, of Michigan, those boards are public officials. They swear a constitutional oath of office. They have the same duties and responsibilities as what most people would know as the elected school district board. Um, All charter boards across the country are essentially nonprofit organizations. The members volunteer their time, and they've got a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that the taxpayer's money is used well, that the kids are learning. And we do a lot of board governance training around the country. And the one thing I always say to boards is that at the end of the day, two things will matter. Are the kids learning and is the money taken care of?
0: Right, exactly. You know, um, a lot of people still do, don't know about charters or if they do, there's a lot of misunderstanding. Why is that?
1: Well, in part, charters are relatively new. We often talk about, you know, the 25th anniversary. So it seems like they've been around a long time. But the reality is chartering is a local and state initiative, so while well, the first uh, state in the country, Minnesota, passed its law and the first school open in 1992, in other places they're just learning about charter schools, passing their laws, getting them started, part one. Part two is there's been an intentional misinformation campaign by those that don't like the charter school idea. And so they've tried to say these aren't real public schools. They've tried to say that they don't have governing boards. They've tried to say that they teach religion and charge tuition, all those things that people like you and I would call the charter myths. Uh, There's five really key myths that get perpetrated across the country, and they all are myths and falsehoods, but they have stuck because the zealous force that's been behind them has got deep pockets and been able to spread that message of what we'd call lies and deception pretty effectively.
0: And how are charter schools doing overall, Jim, to help our listeners understand the landscape?
1: So I always tell people that's the wrong question. Great. And the reason I say that is charter schools are an institutional innovation where you can try things differently and you have flexibility and freedom in order to produce results. So when people ask me, well, Jim, how are charter schools doing, I like to quote Ted Coldry, what's the fastest animal? And I'd think the cheetah, but, well, it depends on the race. If you got to climb a tree, I might take a squirrel. So without trying to get too esoteric on that, the point is this. It. There are charter schools serving students that have dropped out that are doing phenomenally well. There are charter schools that are serving kids that – are trying to compete for Harvard and MIT and Stanford and the University of Michigan, they're doing phenomenally well. There are charter schools that have a theme around robotics or aeronautics or math and science. The schools themselves have to be looked at individually, and their performance has to be assessed individually based on what the people are doing for the kids and the taxpayers in that facility. As a strategy to improve public education, chartering is working phenomenally well. If you look at the arguments that are being talked about today, they're vastly different than they were 10, 20, 30 years ago before charter schools came into place. If you just take a city like Washington, D.C., 20 years ago there was only one provider of public education in that city. It was called the district. Now there is a robust system of public education Because of charters and who's winning at the end of the day, kids and communities. And the one that we don't talk about enough is the educators themselves. Teachers like the different environments and how they have freedom to really educate kids in the classroom in the best way and in the most responsive way that they think is possible.
0: You know, I love the way you put that because it really is not about the word. It's not about um, what the law is called or the school is called. It is about this, this new way of doing education out of a system um, and, and having it tailored uh, with that flexibility and freedom to the needs of students. And you mentioned one of my favorite all-time words, innovation. So, you know, you laid out a handful of ways that charters are innovative. Um, but there's like a national discussion of which you and I have uh, been partaking as of late about innovation that we have begun to lose that very edge – that started, um, started the movement. Why is that?
1: Well, that's multifaceted conversation, but let's just jump into it. Um, again, I like to go back to Ted, Ted Coldry as one of the originators of the charter idea, and people ask him, Ted, what's the big idea? And he says, lots of small ones. <laughs> lots of small ones. And the power of that is that chartering is really a local and state initiative, and it allows people to try different things for their kids, for their communities. And one of the primary drivers is student engagement. How do we create the magic that happens between the student and the teacher? And Ted believes, as I do, that that happens by the people closest to the action. We call them students, we call them teachers, we call them learners, we call them educators. Whatever term you want to use, the reality is that's where it happens. A lot of us are arguing about public policy at the nation's capital or at the state capital, but that's a long way from where learning takes place. And so chartering at a very simple level is a strategy that gets put in place by legislators and governors that allows teachers and students to be more creative and make magic happen at that local level. Number two, the charter idea is so powerful because it's not one size fits all. Mm-hmm. And when you have big states and a big country, there is a lot of differences and nuances that you can't legislate. So that's why we talk about chartering as enabling legislation. It provides a structure and a framework, but it allows people to tailor that to their individual community and particular focuses within that community to meet needs. So I love the word innovation as well. And sometimes what I say to people is, the way some would like innovation to find, you'd have to levitate in the classroom. And what we really need is effective.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so
1: sometimes being effective actually is innovative if Mm -hmm. you really understand public education. And sometimes it's people that are really, truly doing different things in different ways, and that's the other powerful mechanism, and that is sharing those ideas so that others can adopt and build on them. The whole point of it is that we want a self-improving, continuously improving system of public schools that serve our kids better and better.
0: And that give give parents a wide latitude of options to choose from, right?
1: I'm a father of seven. I love options. (laughs) And the one thing that you learn parenting is that all your children have different desires and aptitudes and passions. And right now, if I told you we have a kid in a charter public school in a Catholic school and in a traditional public school, you'd be welcome to the Gunner family. <laughs> We're taking advantage of choices based on our kids' needs.
0: And that's really what that's really what it's all about. I guess that's one of the reasons I was stunned to recently learn that um, the head of the authorizer in Washington, D.C., which has been a really strong body for years— actually said that he didn't want to, uh, he wanted to slow down growth. He didn't want to get beyond 50% because D.C. public schools needs enrollment growth too. And I thought that was so strange. And this is not to get uh, personal at all, but there is this there is this uh, kind of crosshairs, if you will, going on in the charter movement. Some people call it the charter sector, where some folks don't think it should just keep growing. They actually think there should be some balance. And when I think about what you just said about your seven kids, Jim, and the thousands of parents out there that aren't being, whose needs aren't being met, I think to myself, why why would we slow options? Why wouldn't we continue to accelerate considering how little our kids still know and are able to do at grade level?
1: That's a conversation that's happening around the country in different areas, particularly the uh, cities that were the early adopters of chartering, because there was such a great need and parents flocked to those schools in such numbers that you know, just like you're saying, they are now serving 50% of the students in that community. Um, Our economist friends would call that creative destruction, where a new product comes in, it's so much better that it puts the old one out of business. Great example people use would be the landline phone and the cell phone, or they track tape to, you know, music streaming. In public education, we have had some districts that are on the verge of financial collapse because they have lost so many students and they've not been able to adjust or right size.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's the policy dilemma that I think the issue you raised is really getting to. And, you know, the question um, back to old IBM, can you make the elephant dance? I think people are trying to answer that of can they make the district dance?
0: Mm-hmm. It's a really great point. I'm talking with Jim Gunner, the head of the National Charter Schools Institute, about one of our favorite topics on this show, um, exceptional opportunities for kids, and that really is what the chartering concept was all about. You mentioned Ted Coldery, who is the godfather of charter schools, who as a progressive in Minnesota in the late 80s, early 90s, helped launch this law, which was about a different way of looking at education. And when I think of all the discussions today about ed technology and innovation, I think he was pretty prescient in his time, wasn't he?
1: He was. And the thing I love about Ted's original thought piece on the idea of chartering is he made it very simple. And he basically said, when you have an organization that is the only provider of public education, it's guaranteed its students, it's guaranteed its funding and learning is optional and in a lot of places not happening, that's a problem. And he put a name on it called a monopoly. And he said that is not the way to take something that is as so important as public education to the future of our communities and our country and to put all your eggs in one basket. And it's something we learn in kindergarten, right? We're taught don't put all your eggs in one basket. And so chartering in a way is really giving legislators an opportunity to have different providers of public education in a community and let's see how the cream rises to the top what are the lessons that we can learn and it's really an American idea and that is we didn't have 50 states that were the same they could have different policies and practices and we'd see which ones are working and then we'd share them across states it's a very similar concept
0: and it and it went pretty rapidly. I mean, you mentioned 25, 27 years. It went pretty rapidly, began to literally um, spread state by state, community by community, with a lot of grassroots vigor and vitality. And many schools were first started by individual parents and teachers. Today, more and more by networks, um, becoming a little bit more systematized. Where, where do you think we are in the landscape? I mean, what does the picture look like? Do we, need to, do we need to restore more parental involvement and control over the starting of schools? Do we just need to continue to grow them? Do we need to do things differently? What, what would you suggest? Yeah, I,
1: I, I don't think there's a national answer to that. I think, again, it's a local and state answer because it's so nuanced by the size and the geography and the needs of the country. But to the point you raised, Jeannie, there's really two essential things of why did charter schools take off. Number one, there was just a big pent-up demand and need. And number two, it's a great idea. Right. And when you're in the arena of ideas, great ideas so often people are hungry for, and once they see that they can take that idea and build on it, make it work for their students and their community, it flourishes. That's what we've seen with the charter idea. Now, the next question is, well, who's all able to put that idea to work? There have been increasing barriers to entry to get involved to do this work. Um, Some because we learned things and we wanted to prevent and strengthen what people would call the barriers to entry or the gatekeeping to be able to do this idea. Um, Well, why did that happen? Well, in part because we're trying to professionalize ourselves, in part because there were things that happened that we thought, hey, with a little more rigor on the front end, we'd be able to prevent. But that's the balancing act that the movement is going through, and that usually gets simplified down to a debate of quality or quantity. And I think all of us that have been at this for a while see that that's really um, an issue that we all want quality, number one, but we also want all parents to have that choice, and they don't all have that today. And so the question is, how do we give parents not only a choice but a quality choice and what I like to say using my family as an example choice is Mm -hmm. because you've got kids that need different aspirations different needs different desires
0: so fundamentally this is about getting kids educated and many people often ask the question why can't it be done in traditional public schools so as we start to wrap up here And you've touched on a lot of it, but summarize for folks who aren't and don't have the luxury of doing what we do every day. What is it that's missing that obscures the process for people who don't have any other option?
1: Two answers. Number one, it can be done in traditional public schools, and in many places it is being done. And we applaud those. We're huge fans. There's other places where there's bureaucracy in place, there's a lack of openness to innovation and opportunity, and it's stuck in the past. And so the charter idea really brings a couple things to the whole of public education, and that is, one, it's like a speedboat. So it, it can be adaptive and nimble and responsive to needs. And, two, it is is a way to provide those choices that we've talked about but also to show the way. Mm -hmm. We're now seeing districts and superintendents, if I could count over the years the number of superintendents that have whispered to me, Jim I really hate those charter schools as a superintendent but when I want to retire do you have a job? Because I'd love to take that freedom and flexibility and do great things for kids. So those are the dynamics that are going on. Uh, People have their hats That they have to wear in their organizations that they represent. But that's one of the things we're really trying to advocate as the Institute, and that is this is about serving kids, and there are going to be multiple delivery systems. We call them schools, we call them, you know, district charter. But the whole point is how do we serve kids more effectively? And we know why the importance of education to the economic prosperity, to the health, and well-being of the students and our citizenry is just imperative.
0: It truly is. Thank you so much, Jim, for spending time with me today. Where can people uh, reach you or learn more about the Institute?
1: Sure. You can visit our website at www.charterinstitute.org. You can see us at state national conferences, and you can also call us. But we are here to help people implement the idea well so that they're serving kids and taxpayers, and we're also big advocates. So if you want some help with strategy or a partner to win for kids, you can count on us to be with you.
0: I love it. You are terrific, Jim. Thanks again for joining me. Jim Gunner, National Charter Schools Institute, has been my guest today on Reality Check. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for listening to this edition of Reality Check. You can subscribe to Reality Check at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and tune in and never miss an episode. Visit us online at edreform.com and follow CER on Twitter at edreform and me, Jeannie Allen. I look forward to exploring the world of education with you and another prominent guest next time. See you then.